Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Justin McGeary, one of the hosts of this channel. Today we will be talking about the book, The Heart of Dogmatics, Christology and Christocentrism in Hermann Bovink, published by Vandenhoek and Ruprecht, uh, published 2020. And we're talking today with the author, Bruce Pass, who is the honorary, an honorary research fellow at the University of Queensland. Uh, Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you. Lovely to be here. It's great to have you. Your book, The Heart of Dogmatics, uh, it is a deep dive into the Dutch theologian, Hermann Bovink, and particularly his theology of Christ. It explores the place of Christology in Bovink's theological system, making the argument uh, for the central role of Christ, not only uh, not only um, as, as the center of the system itself. Um, but also for uh, the Christian religion. And it examines the metaphors that Bavink uses to describe Christology as the heart and lifeblood of dogmatics and religion. It also looks at Bavink's Christology in light of the current scholarly discussions about how Orthodox or traditionally Reformed and how modern Bavink was. And it's a part of a number of emerging books and dissertations on the 19th century theologian Bobbing especially, but also the larger Dutch neo-Calvinist movement that included uh, Abraham Kuyper, Gerhardus Voss, and a few others. Um, and a lot of these books are coming out of the U- University of Edinburgh, uh, which is kind of right now a hub of Bobbing studies. So, uh, and Bruce, you were there. Um, but uh, what other things, uh, before we get talking about Bovink, um, could you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um... Well, my my um, my background uh, is in classical music. Actually, I was uh, a pianist for a long time and studied piano first in Sydney and then in Germany um, before I went into pastoral ministry. And so, my theological studies began at Moore Theological College in Sydney. And after I pastored a church for four years in Sydney, I undertook doctoral studies at the University of Edinburgh, um, and that's where I met. Uh, some of the people that you're referring to at the uh, the hub of Barving Studies. And that was a delightful opportunity um, with James Eglinton being appointed to the University of Edinburgh. Uh, it became possible to do uh, Barving Studies at one of Britain's um, ancient universities. So that was a terrific um, development on the scene, as it were. Yeah, and there's a lot of it, very interesting in, uh, scholarship coming out right now uh, from uh, James as well as a, a number of others, um, and hopefully, actually, we'll get to talk with some of them. Um, but I wonder as well if you could, before we talk about Boving's Christology, if you could just tell us a little bit about him. You know, his religious intellectual context, and yeah, the, who is he? <laughs> yeah, who is Boving? That's uh, it's a very good question because I think until until the Reformed Dogmatics was translated, uh, 2008 was the year that 
the final volume was released uh, until 2003, 2008, when these books started uh, coming out. Not many people would have known as much about Barvink, fairly shadowy figure, with the exception that the Dutch-American community knows that name very well. Um, but since Reform Dogmatics was translated into English, um, the whole world has come to hear of this name, particularly through, um, you know, the promotion of Gospel Coalition uh, blogs and, and also many more translation projects that emerged from that original Dutch-English project. So uh, you can read Bavink in so many languages now, including Russian and Arabic and Portuguese and Chinese. Um, so lots of people know about Bavink. Uh, but I particularly like the way you introduced him as a 19th century thinker because uh, I think that's the element of Bavink that is only coming to the fore uh, in the more recent wave of scholarship. Um, the, the, the significance of him being a thinker who does his work in the era that concludes with World War One is extremely significant to how we should understand him. Yeah, and how did you get into Bavink yourself? How did you come to write a dissertation on him and on his Christology? Yeah, well, I remember in my undergrad uh, theological studies, one of the lecturers just waving a copy of the, I think the second volume of Reform, no, the third volume of Reform Dogmatics and saying that he enjoyed the, the clear lines of thought and perhaps we should uh, have a little read of it. And at the time, um, I'd been wanting to read some something a bit more substantial and work my way through a systematic theology. Um, Calvin's Institutes was compulsory reading in Moore College and I thought it would be good to read Karl Barth's dogmatics, but I had a hunch that I should probably read uh, something else first to, to sort of prepare myself intellectually for understanding Barth, to understand mm. what he was uh, reacting against. And I thought, oh, here we go. It's only four volumes. and um, <laughs> Versus 12. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Versus, uh, you know, uh, three times as much from um, Karl Barth. And so I took up one of these volumes uh as it coincided with the uh, topics of study. Um, so as it turned out, I think it was actually the Christology volume. And I was absolutely struck by the, um, by two things really. It, it covered a lot of historical theology in ways that I felt that I needed to learn more. But also there, there was a, a way of um, arguing from biblical exegesis through historical theology toward a constructive account of these doctrines, which uh, admittedly culminates in the era right before Karl Barth um, that became very, very attractive to me. I thought, I, I need to read the rest of this. And then by the time I read the rest of Reformed Dogmatics, there, was, there were many things that I wanted to uh, explore in a much deeper way. So um, my doctoral... Uh, thesis really emerged from um, work that I did flowing out of that initial interest. So I'd published a few articles on um, uh, really on Barbing's theological method. 
Um, and my, my initial area of interest for my doctoral thesis was the, the motive of self-consciousness. Uh, it became very apparent to me that this is a very important category for Bavink. Um, and I'd done some work to uh, get the get the ball rolling for that. <laughs> but within three months of starting my doctoral dissertation, uh, James said to me, oh, look, I think it's going to be too close to what another student's doing. You'll need to change. And I was, I was quite shocked by that. But then as I started to think, oh, what else can I do? Um, this quote from the third volume where Barving quite explicitly talks about the structure of his theological system in terms of Christology, it just struck me that this was incredibly important uh, and also a little bit intriguing because it uses metaphors, a little bit poetic, and also for the fact that it appears in the third volume, not the first volume, where you might expect some of these programmatic statements. Uh, and to top that off, um, there's virtually nothing written on Barving's Christology. Uh, when you do a literature review of secondary scholarship on his Christology, there's very, very little. Um, and in the 19th century, Christology is absolutely central to the uh, theological project. On the one hand, you've got the quest for the historical Jesus, the uh, philological work of the Gospels. And uh, on the other hand, you've got uh, responses to Kant uh, with Schleiermacher's Christocentric um, reconceptualization of religion and theology. Uh, and of course, if you follow that historical trajectory, you've got Karl Barth um, doing that again in the uh, 20th century. So all of these uh, made me realize that this is actually a much better topic. Um, and that quote actually focuses on the concept of a theological system. And I think um, that soon became apparent to me that this is uh, something that hasn't really been uh, explored in the at that time in the secondary literature. What does Barvink mean when he talks about a system? And, uh, you know, in the broader scholarly world, um, there's the interesting question of, um, you know, a derivative system and in what sense is theology systematic and the relationship between Calvin and um, Protestant orthodoxy and then notions of a central dogma in the analysis of Protestant thought. Uh, so I soon realised that this this was a, an extremely rich um, field of inquiry. And because Barbic expresses himself so um, so concisely, um, these two sentences are remarkably concentrated. It soon became apparent that I could simply unfold a structure of five chapters where we look very closely at the the four statements and provide some answers as to what does Barvig actually mean when he says these words. Yeah, if you don't mind, uh, could I just read those two, uh, two three sentences? Um, oh, yes, please and, do. Yeah, so you write that, uh, or Bavink writes, this is the, the paragraph that you uh, highlight, quote, the doctrine of Christ is not the starting point, but it is indeed the center of the whole system of dogmatics. All other dogmas either prepare for it or are inferred from it. In it, as the heart of dogmatics, pulses the whole of the religious ethical life of Christianity. It is the musterion eusebeas, for 1 Timothy 3.13, 
the whole of Christology has to proceed from here. And, and so, yeah, then the different sections of the book are Christology and dogmatics, Christology and religion, Chalcedon and modernity, Christology and the derivation of doctrine, Christocentrism then and now. So I guess getting into that initial section, Christology and dogmatics, and in light of this uh, Boving quote, I wonder if you, you point out that he uses the term starting point and middle point when he's trying to kind of locate his Christology, I wonder if you could unpack this starting point, middle point, uh, with regards to what, what is Bavink saying or indicating? Yeah, that's right. So this is the, you know, the first point of um, intrigue, uh, because immediately Bavink appears to be using the language of, of uh, 19th century um, kind of idealist-inspired theology where, where you have a, a starting point for a system. Um, and he's trying to say that, well, Christology is, it's the center, but it's not the starting point, And that in some ways is a contradiction in terms. Uh, but what he's wanting to, to do uh, is really wrestle uh, with what some other theologians refer to as the formal and material principle of Christianity and specifically reformed thought. Um, so the formal principle refers to scripture, the, the source of theology, and material principle refers to its controlling idea. So in contemporary language, we often, we often talk about like a gospel-shaped church or, a, uh, or something like that. In other words, that the gospel shapes, you know, what we do or say. Um, that's the idea of a material principle. Um, so reading scripture, as it were, through a particular lens uh, and so what Bavi wants to do is he wants to, he wants to read Scripture Christologically. But what he doesn't want to do is um, treat Christology as the starting point of theology in a much stronger sense, in the way, for example, um, Schleiermacher did. And uh, there were other theologians as well um, at the time. Uh, so, so fleshing out simply what, what does, what does Bavi find attractive. Um, and then a little bit later in that quote, as that you read, he then talks about um, all theology um, being either derived from Christology or, or or leading toward Christology, which is a very strong statement. And one of the things you also point out in this chapter that um, just in having read some of the other uh, scholarship coming out on Bavink is you talk about the organic motif. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of that motif in Bavink, particularly with regards to Christology. Yeah. Well, this, this is also really uh, intriguing and why this topic started to appeal to me a great deal. Because when Bavink starts talking about a, a theological system, um, it connects directly to the notion of an organism um, he, he states this in various places in Reform Dogmatics and then in other works. Uh, and the organic motif is one of these um, organising principles. So James's work on Trinity and Organism was terrific in charting out the way um, Barvin connects these ideas. And he wants to think of the God-world relationship in terms of an organism. What's intriguing, though, with Barving's connection of the word system to an organism is that in 19th century thought, 
those two things are polar opposites. So an organism is not systematic and a system is not organic. Uh, they're, they're, they're opposite categories. So thinking of system in terms of necessity and organism in terms of freedom. Um, so automatically you're thrust into the question of what does, uh, what does Bavink understand under the word system, particularly when he wants to connect it to the concept of an organism. And I think one of the uh, really important elements of um, that first chapter in my book is where I um, revisit the question of what does Barving mean when he uses the word organism? Uh, so much of the older Dutch scholarship in the 60s, uh, as a matter of fact, just observe in passing that Barving derives this largely from um, uh, the first generation of post-Kantian idealists. So people like Schelling um, use the word organism uh, in their in their attempt to get past Kant in his critique of knowledge to uh, uh, reconnect the real and the ideal. And so the older Dutch scholarship uh, in the 60s, just uh, people like Jan Feenhoff talk about how Barwink uh, appropriates this idea from uh, romantic philosophers like Schelling. Uh, some of the more recent literature, though, has uh, rejected that line of interpretation. Um, so I revisit that question and actually spend a bit of time uh, investigating precisely what Schelling means by organism and then tracing out where Barwink uh, effectively reduplicates that. Um, mm. So there, there are two questions there, the genetic derivation of organism from Schelling. So where did Barwink learn about the organism? But also, um, how does Barving use the organism? And um, I identify uh, five formal properties of the organism in Schelling and trace out how these are reduplicated exactly uh, in Barving. And the way Barving very cleverly maps out his Trinitarian theology over the top of these ideas. So most intriguingly, um, in the organism, uh, Schelling will talk about a, a living force that... Um, it's like a teleological principle that guides the development uh, of living things. And so Barvink will connect this to the Holy Spirit, uh, the perfecter of all God's works. And then Schelling will also talk about the idea or the constitutive principle of an organism. And uh, Barvink will connect this to the Logos or the, the, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Uh, logos being the obvious connections there to rationality, um, you know, the etymology of the Greek word. Um, so all of this is quite fascinating. Uh, the significance that the German idealism has for Barwink is really um, whenever he uses this word organism, what is he actually intoning when he says that? And so uh, when it comes to the system and a, and a theological system, you can see that a great deal of these idealist constructs are pulsing just under the surface. And in fact, um, exactly what Barvink is saying when he speaks of a theological system in those terms. Yeah, this discussion, I thought, was one of the really interesting ones because, yeah, the as you pointed out, the organic motif is something that is kind of well-discussed is where does Barvink get it? Um, but I thought that uh, your discussion was very interesting also as you were connecting with Christology now, one of the things that you do do is can, you kind of take that um, and in the next chapter, you discuss Christology and religion. Um, 
And I guess one of the questions is, yeah, what is the relationship between Christology, religion, and dogmatics? You know, so you kind of unpack and look at that relationship. I wonder if you could explain that a little bit in Bob Inc. Yes, it's, a, it's another term which um, I think for a lot of contemporary readers, potentially for evangelicals especially, we, we're, we're a little bit confused by this language of religion because um, if you go to an evangelical church, you'll often hear people say that Christianity is not a religion and uh, they don't like to think of Christians as religious. You know, religion is about what you do. Christianity is about what God has done for us. Uh, but Barvink will talk about religion all the time. Um, has no hesitation to describe Christianity as a religion. Uh, and then, to make things a little bit more complicated, he distinguishes religion from theology and in a way that it's very deliberate. And so you can tell that something is going on here. Uh, so, so what's really important there is uh, the whole 19th century discussion of what religion is. Uh, so to try and simplify this, um, what Barthing thinks of as religion is, um, I guess, the objective uh, demand that God places on human beings and also the subjective response of human beings to that demand. Um, so you can simplify that into, um, into other categories, you know, like, you know, just because God is God, he, he should be worshipped and he should be obeyed. And when Christians do that by faith, um, that, that is the subjective response. The problem is that in the 19th century, one of the ways of getting around Kant's critique of knowledge, which made God into something that is unknowable, was to redefine religion in terms of feeling. Uh, so psychologically, uh, you have uh, things that you can know, uh, but then you have other things that you can be conscious of at the level of feeling. And uh, it doesn't necessarily mean emotions. Uh, it's more of a precognitive awareness. So before you start thinking, you can be aware of things. Mm-hmm. And so Schleiermacher did this. You know, God is something you intuit. Uh, you sense your dependence upon God. Um, and, and by relocating religion into an area that is uh, not rational, the way Kant uh, was attempting to redefine religion, but into something that is pre-rational, as it were, um, Schleiermacher was able to kind of get around these criticisms uh, that made God into something that was unknowable. And Barvik is responding to that when he wants to talk about religion. Uh, he's very wary of saying that God is something that you can't know. Yet he's also aware of um, the great benefits of what Schleiermacher was doing to suggest that um, God is somehow before and after reason. So God is not the... Uh, the entailment of a deduction. He's not um, that type. It's not that type of knowing that gets us to God, um, that we know God by revelation. And revelation is a much, much bigger category than propositions. So when Barving talks about religion, um, he's talking about um, revelation in that sense, uh, that God reveals himself. He reveals uh, also what we need to do uh, to worship him. 
and then religion subjectively is that response. And he wants to say that Christology is uh, the center of religion in that sense. Uh, and he uses this beautiful metaphor to describe the objective and the subjective elements of that. So the center of revelation is Jesus Christ, and he talks about that as the heart. And then he'll talk about the lifeblood um, as, uh, you know, the the response, the religious response to Christ, and that you have a metaphor there of a heart and its lifeblood animating theology. And I think this is an idea that um, many evangelicals will then reconnect with, the idea that if you don't have uh, that lively sense of religion, of a response to God that uh, comes from the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, then it's just dead like a cadaver, um, a dead orthodoxy. And so with this metaphor, Barving has a real beautiful connection to some of the pietistic strands of Protestantism, which insists that the knowledge of God is something that is living. It's not simply, uh, you know, dead words on a lifeless book, that to know God is, is, a, is a dynamic concept, uh, that it's more than just the words on the page, that those words uh, constitute a personal relationship and that we are made alive in Christ. So Barbink's, uh he's wanting to get to um, the nature of knowing God. What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to say that in theology we know God? And that's where he, he draws on this notion of religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, another uh, thing you point out for Bavinck uh, in this chapter is the emphasis he places on mystery. Where does that fit into this discussion? Yeah, the whole mystery thing is really interesting. Um, one of the interesting features of the uh, digitization of Barvink, so you can get Barvink as an ebook, I think with Logos, uh, the Logos software, uh, means you can actually uh, do word searches and you can have statistics about how often Barvink uses words. So one of the interesting things to observe is that, uh, yes, organism is used hundreds of times. It's one of the most common uh, motifs, as it were, but mystery is used nearly twice as much. So mystery is a word that Barbink keeps referring to and drawing on, and it has a very interesting theological trajectory because it connects him um, to people uh, both in the in the ancient past. Uh, so you think here about ancient Christianity, which would have uh, a via negativa, uh, a negative path, so God is not this God is not that, and it's in identifying what God is not that you gradually come to a knowledge of what God is. And then you have the um, via eminentia, the, 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 the eminent way. So God is loving, but he's much more loving than we ever experience. God is strong like a lion, but far more. He's the ultimate strength and, you know, building up concepts positively like that. So mystery connects with what they call apophatic theology from the church fathers. Mm-hmm. And especially Augustine as well for Barvink. Augustine is the theologian that Barvink quotes. He quotes Augustine more than any other theologian. Um, and, and Augustine will talk about mystery a lot. But in his modern context, um, mystery is being used in a more Kantian sense that God cannot be known. And so it starts being used a lot in this uh, context of modern or liberal theologians who would say that God cannot be known and that the divine is a mystery. 
So Barving does some remarkable things in connecting a very ancient dialogue about God's knowability uh, with a very modern dialogue about God's unknowability. And so he wants to affirm that mystery being the lifeblood of dogmatics means that um, when we come up, when we come to know God, that it moves us to worship him. So in the, in the revelation of God, we come to know him, but uh, he cannot be known exhaustively. And it's this overwhelming revelation of the depth of God and that we can't comprehend him uh, that moves the believer to worship. And this is what he means by mystery being the lifeblood of dogmatics is that it moves a believer to worship. I'm glad that you mentioned uh, the connection uh, that the word has to the early church, because in your actual, in in the next chapter, you explore um, how Bavink is um, sort of traditional or Chalcedonian in his emphasis on Christology, especially with regards to Christ's deity. But you also note that his view on Christ's humanity has a certain modern flavor. And of course, this raises the question that many people who are writing on Bob Inkyo, right? Is he modern or is he um, more traditional, orthodox or reformed? Uh, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this, this uh, Chalcedonian modern question in Bob Inc. Yeah, um, it's a very important question because... The Chalcedonian definition was something that is uniformly rejected in the 19th century, even by very conservative theologians. Um, So I'm I'm actually writing a chapter on Adolf Schlatter and his Christology um, and contrasting him with Bavink uh, for a volume of essays on, um, on Schlatter. And Schlatter, of course, is a much more famous theologian than Bavink uh, until recently. And, and Schlatter, rejects Chalcedon as well. He, he doesn't think that's a particularly helpful way of thinking about Christology. And he has a very, very high Christology. So he certainly thinks of Jesus as God incarnate. Uh, so the significance of Barving affirming Chalcedon is enormous. Um, on the one hand, it makes him more conservative than a theologian like Schlutter. And of course, you do have um, confessional Lutherans that uphold Chalcedon. Uh, but in the spectrum of um, conservative Christians, um, people upholding the Chalcedonian definition, it's way off on the right hand of the spectrum. And that's what makes Barvik very interesting, because at the same time, he acknowledges a great deal of the modern critique of Christology, that it hasn't paid attention to Christ's humanity sufficiently, that Chalcedon uh, defrauds the humanity of Christ at one level. Uh, He... He agrees with Schleiermacher that development of Christ's humanity is uh, problematic. It hasn't been developed sufficiently. Uh, So the development of development, as it were. Um, And so what's interesting is when Barving talks about uh, the deity of Christ as the starting point of Christology and the Chalcedon is basically, uh, could be improved upon, but it's the best thing we've got, so we want to hang on to it. He then moves into a mode of uh, acknowledging the deficit of Chalcedon and that the modern theologians actually are right. And um, what's just very interesting, though, when you see the way Barthing appropriates some elements of modern Christology 
um, is that he runs into difficulty himself of articulating what does it mean for Christ's humanity to develop. And that's one of the points that I draw out um, in in the, the heart of dogmatics is that uh, when you press into this, um, yeah, Barthing has some difficulties there. Um, I've, I've written a chapter for the TNT Clark Handbook on Neo-Calvinism on Christology, and uh, it's quite striking when you look at both Kuiper and Barthing, uh, this openness to liberal theology and their willingness to attempt to um, make good on the deficit of Chalcedon, as it were. Um, and this kind of evaporates when you go a bit further forwards in neo-Calvinism, so the later generations shy away from that. So in many ways, it's, a, it's an interesting feature. Uh, it, it's the unique contribution, I guess, of, of uh, neo-Calvinist Christology. You, you did say, I think at some point in, the, in that chapter, that there's sort of a hypostatic union of the modern and orthodox in, uh, yeah. in Bavink or something like that. Yes, no, I make a bit of a quip that, uh, you know, there's the, uh, the two Bavinks hypothesis, and um, that's a bit of a trope in the literature. You know, do you have a Jekyll and Hyde Bavink? I suggest that we have a hypostatic Bavink uh, uh-huh. that, uh, in the same way that you have a union of natures, but the deity of Christ is the starting point. You have the orthodoxy and modernity um, of Bavink, yet the, uh, the, the orthodoxy, I think, ultimately is the starting point. Um, for a number of reasons, particularly this idea that Christ's deity is the starting point. He is a divine person. He is the incarnate second person of the Trinity, and um, it's deeply anchored in that. Uh, but having said that, I think um, one of the problems with the reception of Bavink is that um, it's only really starting to be appreciated that he's very critical of Reformed orthodoxy. Um, we think of him as standing uh, very close to the 17th century in terms of what he wants to affirm theologically. But that's that's not exactly true. He, he's, he's quite critical of Reformed orthodoxy. And um, there's a nice chapter by Hank von der Belt um, coming out soon that explores that a bit more. And um, uh, a translation project I've been working on recently, uh, The Foremost Problems of Contemporary Dogmatics. It's a very long series of lectures Barving wrote after he moved to Amsterdam. Uh, we see this this critique of Reformed orthodoxy very, very, very stridently in some passages. Uh, so while we want to talk about the priority of the orthodox nature of Barving, if you, that's the way you want to uh, term that, um, that can't be the last thing to be said about him. Uh, there is a genuine conflict uh, in Barving, and, and he's he's a theologian who is seeking but not always finding. Moving on to one of the sentences uh, that Barving has in this um, these three sentences that you use to structure your thesis, you say, um, or Barving says, all other dogmas either prepare for Christology or are inferred from it. Um, your next to last chapter, you then look at this question of how do other doctrines um, derive or prepare uh, for Christology, uh, derive from or prepare for. Uh, and you look at uh, particularly doctrine of scripture, doctrine of church, uh, doctrine of last things. I wonder if you want to explain how you see those three in particular. Or how did you choose those three to kind of be a test case for, for this central place of Christology? 
Yeah, I think this is the part of the the book that interested me just at a constructive level the most. Um, So when Barvink talks about deriving theology from Christology, what does that actually mean? And so he he has this idea that some doctrines prepare for Christology and then the rest of them are derived from Christology. Uh, So I picked three of them that are uh, very obviously derived from Christology. Um, The doctrine of scripture is really interesting because he applies the incarnational analogy to scripture. Um, And he does this in a very sophisticated way. So there's a bit of a discussion in um, systematic theology about whether you can do this. And uh, lots of big names and famous people say you can't, um, that it's a confusion of categories. Uh, But what's remarkable when, when Barvink Uh, wants to talk about scripture as the incarnation of the word, Um, he does it, or the embodiment of the word of God, he does this in a very, very sophisticated way that actually evades many of the um, criticisms. They don't really get traction on Barving. So I found that very interesting to explore and bring Barving into conversation with some of these people that have criticized that. It's also a very ancient doctrine of scripture, and he, he, uh, he, he draws a bit on John Wycliffe, uh, Wycliffe uses this analogy, and it goes all the way back to Oregon and people like that. Um, so very interesting. Uh, the, the doctrine of the church is an interesting one because in the first volume of Reformed Dogmatics, you see some very strong, uh, almost Hegelian statements about uh, the church being the completion of Christ and the continuous incarnation. He actually uses that phrase uh, on more than one occasion. But then when he comes to write the doctrine of the church, uh, the organic motif takes over. And um, it's quite it's quite confusing at one level to work out, well, where did all that incarnational stuff go? How does that fit uh, with the idea of the church as an organism and an institution? But I think the most interesting one is eschatology because uh, there's a phrase in the fourth volume of Reformed Dogmatics, I think, where he says that eschatology is Christology. And it's just such an intriguing statement. It's like something Maltman could have said. Um, And he has a really interesting metaphor that he derives from a New Testament scholar by the name of uh, Baldensperger. So probably nobody's heard of him, but at the time, Barbeck's reading Baldensperger, and he likes um, this, this implicit metaphor of Uh, eschatology being like a river that flows into the sea and you have this estuary right at the mouth of the river and that's the incarnation Uh, and then as it proceeds into the ocean that's kind of where eschatology is um, fulfilled so um, the idea that eschatology is Christology is really interesting and it reconnects with some of the more overtly Hegelian tropes that you can find in Barvik. Mm, yeah, that's, I think one of the things that is very interesting about the, the book is you do a good job. I mean, you focus primarily on his thought, but at n- a number of points, you, you do kind of locate him um, within the, the 19th century in very uh, striking ways. But you conclude the book talking about Christocentrism then and now, by actually bringing Bavink sort of into conversation with John Webster. I, I wonder why that uh, decision to conclude there, to, con- to bring these two 
uh, into connection? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think uh, one of the reasons that motivated me all along with studying Barthing was to understand the development of Protestant thought um, because Karl Barth is the towering figure um, on the horizon who takes theology in an ostensibly different direction. Um, one of the interesting things about Webster is that um, he he was a Bart scholar for much of his life, but towards the end of his life became very interested in Barvink. And I was intrigued by an anecdote that was told to me by um, uh, someone while I was in Scotland that while he was examining a PhD in Aberdeen, one of the other examiners asked him, um, oh, who do you turn to on your shelves for help when you're thinking about a theological problem? And he said, oh, for a very long time it was Karl Barth, but now it's Hermann Barfink. And um, a very intriguing comment. Uh, and that set me um, thinking about the uh, development of Webster's thought toward the end of his life. He became much more interested in Thomas Aquinas and much more interested in occasionally fairly obscure figures from Reformed Orthodoxy, but there is a demonstrable appropriation of Hermann Barthing, and presumably um, he got some of this from reading Reformed Dogmatics. Um, but it's a little bit obscure, but if you if you read Webster very closely, he argues for a kind of modified or attenuated Christocentrism that Barthing, um advocates. And um, so I thought that um, something like or someone like Webster is really the type of thinker that connects with what Barvink is wanting to do. Um, and and so, so I trace out um, some of Webster's criticisms of um, Christocentrism and um, the type of Christocentrism that he, that he rejects um, and, and try, to, uh, try to suggest a pathway, you know, where does Barvink's thought actually fit in contemporary dogmatics. Like uh, an awful lot has happened in the last hundred years. Um, Mm -hmm. So you can't go around just talking about Schelling and Hegel and organisms without thinking about the development of Protestant dogmatics after the First and Second World War. And uh, so that that chapter is an attempt to to do some of that groundwork by bringing Barvink into closer proximity to the thought of John Webster. Yes. What when you come away when you finish the project? What what is your sense for Bavink's success? Of I I know that uh, there's a number of scholars that are kind of critical of the 19th century kind of central place of Christology. What's what is your what's your sense for Bavink? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think in the last chapter I suggest somewhere that Bavink needs an organismectomy, (laughs) um, which I quite liked coining that word. Have a little chuckle to myself when I was writing that, um, and it conjures up all sorts of um, horrific um, images. Uh, but the organism, I've, I've, in a lot of that, to me, seems to be a liability because um, it locks you into certain categories and structures of, like the the subject object dichotomy, is one of the big problems that philosophy was trying to to, to address. And the organism is so rooted in that subject-object dichotomy. Um, so is it really feasible that we can talk about an organic uh, mode of theological retrieval, um, especially when thinkers like Wittgenstein and and other uh, important phenomenological 
philosophers, uh, you know, is this really, is it really possible to turn the clock back? Um, but I think uh, in some of the more recent things I've published, I've actually noticed um, some areas where the organism is profoundly useful. So I've recently written a doctor, uh, uh, an article on the doctrine of providence and where Barvik uses the organism with, with its notions of indirect correspondence and its textbook shelling he uses it to great effect to undergird um, classic reformed ideas about divine providence. And so um, now I'm not so sure that he needs an organismectomy because um, it's a stroke of genius what he does with the doctrine of providence. And um, it still might be the case that we need to get rid of the organism. Um, but there's some there's a deep insight uh, to the notion of indirect correspondence between subject and object, which is um, really interesting. So I, I think at one level, I've developed that thought a little bit. Um, you know, how, how do you appropriate some of these ideas? Um, so I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I think one of the things I want to do uh, is to um, develop that idea of how do we retrieve Barbink and um, do that over a number of areas of his thought, test cases, if as it were, test cases on particular doctrines. Um, and, and perhaps there will be varying results. Uh, so in some parts of his thinking, perhaps the organism could potentially be very, very helpful. I actually think his doctrine of scripture is one of those areas. His notion of organic inspiration, I think, is very very illuminating but there are other areas of thought where i where i'm inclined to want to um, move away from organic things uh so i guess the answer is i'm not sure but i'm still thinking mm-hmm. and reading and writing um and enjoying reading lots of Karl Barth, which was the purpose of reading all that bavik in the first place well thank you very much uh, for your time. But before we uh, wrap things up, I wonder if you could, you've already alluded to a few things, but what are some of the things that you're working on now that we can kind of be looking for? Yeah. Uh, Well, there's a number of short pieces, um, but there's a nice volume of essays that, um, uh, that I've edited and I wrote one of them as well uh, for the Barvink centenary. So the 2021 year was the hundredth anniversary of Barvink's death. Um, so it's a beautiful volume of essays looking uh, not just a scatter, you know, scattergun approach to Barvink's thought, but uh, it's been, uh, I've, I've asked authors to actually address key areas of uh, Barvink's work. So there's essays on Barvink and psychology, Barvink and pedagogy, Barvink and philology, as well as Barvink's appropriation of reform sources his use of scripture, not just the doctrine of scripture, but how does he actually use the Bible and um, his use of philosophy. And um, uh, the last essay is actually where I return to this idea of theological retrieval and uh, what can we do with Barvink today? And I bring him into much closer conversation with Karl Barth um, on their respective conceptualizations of faith. So I think, I think that's a really nice collection of essays. I'm just waiting on Oliver Crisp to send me his final draft and then the thing can get published. Uh, but that'll be coming out with Brill, uh, hopefully sooner than later. Um, and it will be interesting just to uh, 
see how uh, the wonderful contributors uh, uh, can connect with uh, contemporary discussions on barfing. Yeah. Well, that sounds very interesting. Thank you so much for your time, Bruce. Uh, thank you for an interesting book. And uh, hopefully we'll have another conversation about Bob Inc. Very nice. It's been nice to chat with you, Justin. <laughs>